and you're found once again in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 46. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is our light. It is our guide. Lord, it's because of your word we we have confidence in the future. We have confidence in our past. Lord, in the present, your word is the greatest hope. And so we pray that you would cause your truth through it to come alive into our hearts, that we would, we would understand it, not just intellectually, but convictionally, that it would transform not just what we believe, but how we feel. And again, we, we, we we pray, we begin by prayer because we know we need you. Lord, that, that through our own efforts, we cannot bring about the change that we need. Lord, we want to be like Christ. Lord, we need your grace for that to be accomplished. So we, we plead with you. Help us to be a church that, that is like this church, the early church that you have called. We pray these things in make many critical decisions throughout our life about things like if or where we should go to college, graduate school, if or who we should marry, the major decisions, or what we decide to do for a career, if and when and where we purchase a house, or when we should start having children and how many. There are many critical decisions, impactful decisions that we make. But I think arguably the most impactful decision a person can make is one that's often made without very much thought at all, or at least without much fear or caution. And that's the decision on where we should go to church, where we decide to go to church. And as I thought about it, a person's choice of what church they commit to is is more impactful, I believe, than any other decision they make in their life. Uh, maybe even more so than marriage. And the thing with marriage is it's permanent. You can go to a different church. But as I think about it, I thought about it for my life, myself personally, and uh, conversations I've had with other people, even in studying church history, the correlation between the church a person goes to, the teaching they receive, and the people they are with, on a regular basis, has a far greater impact than 
most of the teaching they may not the church is often what guides it and that makes sense because it's through the church that we are ministered to that we are guided towards christ likeness when you think about what the church actually is it is the body of christ the temple of the holy spirit it would make sense that no other thing would have as much impact as the church. And yet often in our society, it's just made a decision based upon convenience or personal preference. So if, if it is such an important decision, it's, it's worth asking the question, what does the ideal church look like? Is it having a good brand? Having a well-known pastor? Thousands of members and a large pastoral staff. People regularly getting saved. An impact on the surrounding culture. This is what many people would suggest are the marks of an ideal church. The Bible gives us a a picture of what the ideal wife is like. Proverbs 31. It even gives us a picture of what the ideal husband is like. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We have a picture of of the ideal husband, the ideal wife. What about the ideal church? Well, I think we do get a picture of that here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And it can be characterized, I think, under two headings, which will also serve as an outline to the passage. This passage is broken up into two sections. uh, and, And both sections emphasize the unity of the church and their devotion to one another. And both sections actually parallel one another as well. That the Christians here are pursuing the two greatest commandments. They are loving God with all their heart, and they're seeking to love one another as themselves. Moreover, both sections also point out that what the the Christians are doing, and then also what the Lord does on account of what the Christians are doing. So you have both the Christians' work as well as the Lord's work in light of the unified devotion of the church. And the first section, verses 42 to 45, speaks of the church's devotion to the means of grace. That is, the methods of worshiping one another, of worshiping God, and then it also speaks to caring for one another. The second section, verses 46 to 47, speaks to their devotion to worshiping God, and then also to being with one another. So what I, what I want you to see is there's, in both sections and throughout the passage, there's this emphasis on horizontal worship, or sorry, vertical worship, and then also on horizontal worship. Worshiping God, loving God, and also caring for one another. That's the greatest commandment. It's a powerful picture of what the church was originally designed to look like. But most remarkably, it shows that what brought about this unity, this sincerity in worship, its effectiveness as a church wasn't their vision, it wasn't their effort, it wasn't uh, any sort of program or secret strategy. What brought about this unity, this worship, this love, was quite simply the work of the Holy Spirit and their submission to His leading. Let's look, first of all, at uh, the devotion that they had to the means of grace. Verses 42 to 45. If you look at verse 42, it 
It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The means of grace. What we mean by the means of grace are the means whereby the Lord brings about spiritual growth in our lives. The Bible teaches repeatedly that the Spirit uses four particular things to bring about growth. The Word of God, prayer, fellowship, which would include ministry to one another, using spiritual gifts of service and giving. And the fourth fourth thing it uses is to grow us in suffering. Obviously that fourth one isn't something we pursue, but it's often what the Lord brings into our life to cause us to suffer. And three of these things are listed here along with the breaking of bread, which again is, I think, a a specific expression of fellowship. Let's look first of all at teaching. The first means of grace listed is the apostles, their their devotion to the apostles' teaching. And it's no accident that this is what's listed first, because this is the fuel behind all the other passion to be devoted to worship. It was because of their understanding of God and His purposes that was driving everything else that they were doing. The more they learned, the more they loved. And that's true of of their love for both God and for one another. Again, the Word was the fuel that was being used to drive their devotion to these things. They were also devoted to fellowship. The word is koinonia. You're familiar with it. it. It refers to sharing something in common. Other people. And what was it that they were sharing in common with? We see here it's the, the Holy Spirit. It was poured out upon them earlier in the chapter. Having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, these strangers now had more in common with one another than they had even with their family members. The two Christians had more unity, more in fellowship, more in common than twins were. Their life purpose, their love for God and one another drew them together in a common purpose, which we describe as fellowship. But fellowship is not merely hanging out with other Christians over coffee and cookies and just talking about things. It refers to having a unified purpose and love, and that purpose is what actually draws them together. They want the same thing, and and, and, and like magnets, they're drawn to one another to help them accomplish that purpose. And their conversations and choices, therefore, naturally revolve around spiritual things, spiritual concerns, versus the things of this world. And because of the Holy Spirit, other Christians become, again, closer than family. And that's why these Christians ate meals together. What's described here as the breaking of bread. They eat meals together just like family would. And some commentators are convinced that this breaking of bread uh, must refer to the Lord's table, which is possible. But the same phrase is used earlier in the Gospels, uh, depicting events before Christ instituted the Lord's table. And there it just refers quite simply to sharing food. Quite literally, often breaking bread and then sharing the pieces and passing it around. Moreover, there's no mention made of wine here, which is significant, since that entails half of the elements in the Lord's table. So I think it seems more likely that what Luke is describing 
is simply the practical outworking of the real fellowship, communion that they had with one another. They were drawn to spend time with one another. They functioned like a new family and therefore regularly gathered together to, to, to eat meals and to talk about life. Fourthly, Luke mentions that they were devoted to the prayers. Now this, although most certainly they would have been praying individually on their own, uh, what this word refers to is actually formal gathering together for the purpose of prayer. Regularly scheduled prayer meetings, such as what we saw in the last chapter, Acts one fourteen. Also, Acts three one notes that they gather together in the temple, particularly to pray. And then in chapter four twenty three, we see them gathering in homes, particularly to pray as well. So this is probably referring to prayer meetings as a church. Verse forty three then describes the effect of their devotion of these means of grace, their pursuit of the word and fellowship and praying together. The effect of that was verse forty three. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Look at that word awe. The word translated awe here is phobos, which we know is fear. It refers to a a, a fear and trembling, literal fear. It's not suggesting that they were going to church and experiencing a peaceful, easy feeling, like that you might experience at a fireworks display on the 4th of July. This is talking about they felt a fear of God. As they were learning about God, as they were seeing the truth of the Word of God being played out in their life, they began to fear Him in a way they'd never feared Him before. They were now indwelt by the Holy Spirit who was leading them to this beginning of wisdom. Right, The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. They were becoming more and more like Job, whose life was characterized by a fear of God. And therefore, they were living like that great patriarch that we studied earlier this year. They were no longer being driven by the fear of man, but now they wanted to live to please Christ. And this fear was increased and affirmed through the wonders and signs that were taking place. These two words, wonders and signs, referred to miracles that the apostles were performing. And it it demonstrated they weren't charlatans. They were genuine representatives of God. God wanted people to know that they were genuine representatives. He didn't want people to simply take them in His Word. He wanted people to know that they really did speak for Him. And so He gave them the ability to perform supernatural signs, confirming that they really were from God. And not only did they have a greater awe of God on account of this, but this greater fear of the Lord also overflowed into love for other people. Look at verses 44 to 45. It says, And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 44 emphasizes two things that further characterize these early Christians. The first is that they were together. They were together versus being separated on their own. Emphasizing again, there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We need one another just as much as uh, the word and prayer. We need fellowship just as much as we need to hear.
hear the preaching of the Word of God, just as we need to be devoted to that. Now, somebody might say, well, well, I, I don't need fellowship because I get what I need from just my own personal time in the Word, from my own personal time in prayer. But that, honestly, that makes about as much sense as a person saying, um, I don't need drink water because I'm getting food and I have shelter. So why would I need water? Well, you need all three. And the same thing is true for Christians. We don't just need the Word. We need the Word. We need prayer. We need fellowship with one another in order to grow. All of those are necessary. We can't just pick and choose. They're all necessary for our development. Spiritual isolation is is like spiritual suicide. Or at least spiritual starvation. If we're choosing to make life difficult, our spiritual life difficult, as we isolate ourselves from one another. The second thing verse 44 emphasizes is that they shared their wealth. They began selling, it says, their possessions. And the imperfect tense here indicates that such generosity was not just a one-time occurrence. They weren't just inspired by one message they heard or one song they heard or one book they read. This was something they were continuing to do. It was a pattern of their life. It was a norm, a characteristic of the Christian. And another thing it's it's, it's worth thinking about is that it shows that their worship was not simply institutional because nobody told them to do this. This is what they were doing on their own. They were personally inspired, out of love for God and one another, to begin giving of their possessions. These Christians fully embraced what Christ himself said on the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They believe what Jesus said in Luke 6.38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you will use, it will be measured out to you. Christ said that. He promised that. And they believed it. And we know they believed it because they acted on such a promise. This is how they lived. Remember also what the author of Hebrews said. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We're often, we often hear, do not neglect the pattern of meeting together in Hebrews 13. But we often forget this command. Don't neglect to do good and to share with what you have. Because with such sacrifices... God is pleased. Many, many people assume that going to church is, that, sorry, giving to church is primarily a responsibility for the wealthy in our church. That because they don't make as much money as other people, that they're not gifted to give. That's, that's the way another person sees it. But from the beginning, God expected his people to give as an expression of worship to him. We see this just right after the garden. The first conflict between Cain and Abel came because of them 
giving, offering up their first fruits from their farming. When the Mosaic Covenant was established, God commanded every member of the covenant people to give tithes and offerings, 10%, the first fruits of their labor. So God always has always expected people to give back to Him as an expression of worship. Moreover, I think it's important for us to realize the best examples of such giving given in the Bible is by poor people. Like the quintessential givers, Jesus points out in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, is the poor widow. And also, Paul points out the poor Macedonians in 2 Corinthians. Right, Jesus said in Mark 12, Truly I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had to live on. That's what, we're supposed to, that's, what, that's what he says. That's the kind of worship of which God is really pleased. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, while they're suffering, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And Paul was not chastising them as being foolish, just as Jesus didn't chastise that gracious widow. So even the greatest givers that we see in the New Testament aren't the rich. It's the poor, which should tell us all of us should be giving to the Lord's work as an expression of worship. But I think it's also important to emphasize that what the church was practicing here was not communism. And, and that needs to be emphasized because that's often how it's, how it's uh, described, that they lived in a community together, communal living, and they just shared property and, 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 and cults will take this to some weird, strange extremes. But what's being practiced here is not communism, but actually it's opposite. The opposite of communism isn't capitalism. It's Christianity. This was not something externally imposed on them. They weren't being forced to do this. They weren't even being told to do this. They weren't being directed to do this. The apostles didn't stand up and say, this is what good Christians do. They were doing this from their heart. This is what they wanted to do out of an expression of worship and care for one another. It was internally driven by the Holy Spirit. It was not regulated by men, such as in a commune or under communism or socialism. This was something that was happening because it was being driven by love that was infused by God. They wanted it. And notice it was not an entirely passive phenomenon either. Right? The believers would do their part they pursued the means of grace as they would gather together and have people into their homes sharing their meals. And as they did their part, God did His part in 
overflowing their hearts with a fear of him and a love for him and a love for one another. It's a picture of believers devoid of self-centeredness and pride. Right? And such, such unity like this cannot be manufactured by leaders. It can only happen by the Holy Spirit. As their hearts are changed by the Holy Spirit. So why don't we experience such radical expressions of unity within the church today? Because we still have the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit they had is the same Holy Spirit we have. So why don't we see this in the church? Especially in America that's so abundantly blessed. Well, I think the simple answer is that indwelling sin quenches the work of the Spirit. Frankly, we allow it. We justify our selfishness. We allow our selfishness to govern our lives more often than the Spirit. And I think the church will continue to be restrained in its love and care for one another. Until we no longer, until until we're convinced that we no longer need to live for ourselves. Because God's not with us. And that we, we are convinced that we need to live for Him. And the church will continue to be restrained in its love for one another until we recognize the real wisdom and glory of what it means to follow Christ. That we, we understand that it's not doom and gloom to take up your cross and follow me. But it's with Christ and it's no longer we who live but Christ who lives in us and we're not going to we're not going to love like this until we stop thinking about how we measure up to one another in the body of Christ and instead we become consumed with how we can help one another measure up to Christ's likeness when our focus is no longer upon ourselves and our own glory but it is fixed upon how we can help and serve and care for one another. The reality is we're still very selfish as Christians. God's glory and others' good has to become the passion that drives us in our lives. As long as we're stuck in trying to live this self-centered, self-pitiful, self-righteous, pretentious, proud American dream, until we're convinced that that's silliness and foolishness, we will not experience this. And it, it can't be forced. It can't be regulated. It's only going to happen as each individual in the body of Christ is convinced that they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Until they're convinced of Freedom, that they are free from sin, free to no longer live for themselves. You, you can't make such unity happen through programs. You can't make this happen through stirring up people's emotions through music. And these can create a temporary mirage of unity, and we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're walking in the Spirit. But the difference between the two is like the husband who 
listen, hears a love song on the radio, and because he's so inspired by that love song, he thinks, hey, I really love my wife. The difference between just having a heart stirred by, by a song and the husband who gives up his career ambitions to stay and take care of his ailing wife and One is just romantic, fleeting fancies, and the other is sacrificial, genuine, biblical love. You you can manufacture the one. The other can only happen through the work of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And this will only happen for us when each member chooses to turn from their self-centeredness and to truly live for Christ and His purpose. this not because it's the fashionable thing to do, because their emotions are stirred by a song or a sermon, but because they're convinced that that's the life that they want to live. That's appealing to them. That excites them. Because soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, is not merely a slogan that they love to say, but it is the very beat of their heart. like this until this is a reality in our lives, not just something that we appreciate in a song. This brings us to their devotion to worship this morning. It says, day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Notice it begins by saying they were continuing with one mind. This is actually the same word, the same tense, the same exact word that was used earlier in verse 42. They were as devoted to worship and caring for one another as they were devoted to the means of grace. And again, this continuousness emphasizes that a radical transformation has taken place. It wasn't just a one-time occurrence. Their their lives have changed. Their heart of stone has been removed, and they've been given a heart of flesh. You've got to remember that these were the same Jews who just weeks earlier had called out for Christ to be crucified and declared that they had no other king but Caesar. It's the same people who are now giving abundantly, daily going to worship in the temple. The very man that they demanded should be crucified. A radical transformation has taken place. They are now worshiping Christ with all their hearts and their neighbors themselves. No longer are they seeking their self-interest and pursuing their own ambitions. Again, and and they're doing this daily, day by day, it says. Very similar to Calvin's renewal revival that he experienced in Geneva, where church members would come every day of the week just to hear another sermon preached, which is how he was able to preach through almost every book of the Bible. The church was thirsty for the Word of God. They were devoting themselves to loving God and one another and doing so with a unity of mind. That that Greek word that's used there is omathumadon. of having a unified will and a togetherness, just like the members of the body. 
work together for the good of the body. They're unified, functioning together, not each part independently. Their unity comes to being led again by the same Holy Spirit that indwells them. They're filled with the Spirit. They're now walking in the Spirit. They're no longer focused on themselves, but Christ-centered. And the text then delineates how this one purpose was expressed. First, Luke notes that they were unified in their daily commitment to gather together in the temple for worship. Again, these were the Jews that were dwelling in Jerusalem, so that's what Jews would do for worship. And so they were doing that regularly. But their commitment went beyond just worshiping God, singing His praise in the temple, but there was a horizontal expression as well as they committed to spending time together, caring for one another. The second activity Luke mentions is their devotion to eating both informal and formal meals together. We already noted that the the phrase breaking of bread just meant to share food with one another, describing an informal meal. But they are also having formal meals together. They were inviting people into their homes. And as you know, it's really hard to just spontaneously ask a person into into your home and provide a meal. You need to make sure you have enough food. Often take time to clean the house. It takes preparation, and there's a more formal element versus just sitting by a coworker and asking if you could have half their sandwich. And so they were there. There was a a delight to share what they had immediately, but also there was a purposeful preparation here. They planned on sharing and being together. demonstrated that they not only wanted to share their food with one another, but they wanted to spend time together. They, they, they liked each other. They wanted to be together. You weren't having to drag them to community group. You were having to drag them away from community group. They wanted to be together. Luke even says that they did this with glad and generous hearts. When we think of the word glad, we either think of trash bags, Or we just think of like a happy, smiley face. But it's important to to recognize that the word glad here is a very strong word. It's the same word actually that's used to describe the response of John the Baptist in the womb when he encountered Christ. Recall how Elizabeth said to Mary, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. That's the same word that characterized the heart of the Christian. Consider also the doxology in Jude, wherein he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's the same word. Great joy is how it's translated here. So gladness isn't just cheerfulness. They were ecstatic about spending time together. They wanted it. They delighted in it. And the second phrase used, sincerity of the heart, speaks to a simple and carefree attitude. The point is they weren't trying to show off. They, they just enjoyed, this is what they wanted to do. They didn't think much about it. They weren't trying to prove how spiritual they were. They just genuinely wanted to spend time together. The last two phrases repeat the pattern of loving God and loving others again. Right? It says they were praising God. This is probably a reference to, to singing. They wanted to sing about what God has done, what they were learning. 
And that makes sense because the Holy Spirit in them would cause their affections to well up in love for God. So it wasn't just in, it wasn't just mental worship, believing certain doctrines. It wasn't just doing acts of service, expressions of the worship and the will. But their affections were welling up so much that they wanted to sing. And it says that they also were having favor with. The, that, that phrase should probably be translated having good will towards. Because this is how the same phrase is translated in other ancient texts. The point is not so much that the unbelievers liked them, although that's quite possible, but they were consumed with a gracious attitude towards all people. So this is describing their grace towards all people, not all people's grace toward them, most likely. So they were consumed with a gracious attitude towards all people. They weren't just committed to loving one another, but, but strangers as well. And as the Christians directed themselves toward loving God and loving people, God did his part. They did their part. God did his part. And God's part was he continued to add to their number daily those who were being saved. Right? The Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It wasn't the apostles adding. It wasn't the Christians adding. It was the Lord adding. Right? Because salvation is the work of the Lord. So how do we practically become a church like this? If this is the ideal church, this is what we should want to be like, how do we do that? Especially if it can't be regulated. Well, I think each of us have to be brutally honest with the question, what are we really living for? Who are we really living for? How are you, how are you spending your time? Especially your quote-unquote free time. And why? What's your budget say you're living for? And what do you really want? What angers you? What thrills you? What threatens you? Right? Those are the things that lead us to the decisions that we make. And the decisions we make shout what we actually worship. Like, you can go to church every day of your life but not worship God. Right? Worship is something that happens from the heart. And that's what directs the decisions we make. These people weren't going to church because they were told to do this or because it was fashionable. It's what they wanted to do. Their choices reflected what they actually loved, God and one another. It wasn't because they were told to do these things. It was natural. It was more natural for them to do these things than unnatural. If you're a Christian, loving God with all your being and your neighbors yourself is more natural than not. Because it's not only how you were created to live, but it's how you've been recreated to live. You've been born again. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer, you're no longer enslaved to just do what is selfish. You're free. And so I, I recognize that looking at a passage like this might seem intimidating, even overwhelming, even impossible. But if you really believe what the Word of God says, you'll recognize it's not... This shouldn't be shocking. This should be what you would expect. 
if people really believe the Word of God. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, we don't. Or at least there's just passages we choose to ignore. Because it's not comfortable, it's not convenient, and it might interfere with the things that we actually want to do with our lives. Alright, the reason this seems so hard is that we've convinced ourselves that self-centered living is still justified. It's justified for every other American, so we're Americans, so we should still be able to live selfishly too. We believe that we can still love the world and still love Christ. So what's hard is not so much living this way as Christians. What's hard, brothers and sisters, is letting go of the old man. Dying to self. And I don't mean to suggest that taking up our cross daily and following Christ is easy. But if, if you're a Christian... Living this way is going to be more natural to you than unnatural. More fitting to what you actually ultimately want. And so I think the way to change is, again, first just to be honest with ourselves. Honest with the reality of the selfishness in our life. Honest why we don't serve more in the church. Honest why it's so hard for us to finish the church membership process. Honest why we don't give. Honest why we choose not to go to community group. We just need to be honest with ourselves. And until we're honest with ourselves, we're not going to change. And if we don't change, don't expect anybody else in the church to change either. It starts with each one of us individually being honest. Do you really want to live for Christ or not? And secondly, I think it just means... Pursue the means of grace. Read the Word. Study the Word. Memorize the Word. Listen to the Word preached. Read theology. Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching just like them. Pray, not just on your own, but come to the prayer meetings. Pray in community groups. Pray when you get together with friends. Have fellowship with one another. Don't just talk about sports, but talk about what you're struggling with. Talk about who you're trying to reach with the gospel. Talk about the things that the Spirit wants you to talk about. We need to be honest with our selfishness first. Secondly, we need to pursue the means of grace from the heart. And thirdly, just do what your heart, as led by the Spirit, really wants to do. Love God and love one another. Just do it. Stop justifying the selfishness of love. Because that's what you've been set free to actually do. And this, this chapter, this, this, these verses are given to us as a gift to let us know this is what this church not only can be, but what this church should be. If we really believe what God has promised. Let's pray. Father, we want the church to be like this. And Lord, we want to be like this. And we will be the first to admit, I will be the first to admit, that this is not often how I even live. And so, Father, I pray that you would change us. 
Not because we're trying to prove anything to anybody, to one another, or to the world. But because we just don't want to be held back in the worship that you deserve. Lord, you deserve to be worshipped with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All our affections. All our possessions. All our lives belong to you. And Lord, we know... We know that nothing that we give up, nothing that we lose in this life will be vain if lost for your sake. Deepen our convictions. Shape us, mold us to be the church that you desire us to be. We ask these things in Christ's name.